So right after Trump won, I, I took my platform, which was 150 pages. I made it into this like 100 page book called You're Hired, uh, a Trump playbook for fixing America's economy because I figured that Donald Trump could actually read. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am pleased you're here for another fantastic conversation. This week, we are talking with Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff. Who is Lawrence? Well, he is a man who does many things. He's a professor of economics at Boston University. He's the president of a financial planning company that specializes in financial planning software. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He has authored and co-written 20 books. That's right, 20 books. The Economist magazine ranked Lawrence one of the world's top 25 most influential economists. Lawrence's writings and research, they focus on personal finances, inequality, taxation, social security, climate change, investing, healthcare, deficits, insurance, and so on. Lawrence's columns and writings have been everywhere from New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, The Hill, Financial Times, Times of London, Forbes, CNBC, Bloomberg, and the list legitimately goes on and on and on. Lawrence has even sat as a consultant to the Federal Reserve, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and many other institutions that require his level of expertise, such as the Bank of Italy, Bank of Japan, Bank of England, and many other government organizations around the world. Today on the podcast, we talk about Lawrence's background and his new book, Money Magic, An Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life. I thought this was such a fascinating conversation, as most of our conversations on the podcast tend to deal with the human side of money, I would call it. And not that Lawrence doesn't look at the human side or the more emotional side, the subtitle of his book suggests it's a better life, but you can really see his background as an economist really comes through a lot of his perspective, which I found quite interesting and valuable. And I think it's so important that we bring on different perspectives, different backgrounds on this podcast. And I appreciated his deep, rich level of focusing on the economic point of view on so many issues. There was one conversation that we had around his chapter, Marrying for Money. I wouldn't have written that chapter, but... Lawrence explains the intent behind that chapter. And again, that's what I like about having a podcast is bring people with different views, different perspectives. And he does explain the intent behind that chapter. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Sean. So Lawrence, as I was preparing for this, I got your book, what we're going to talk about, Money Magic. 
And I started doing some background check, not checks, research on you. And holy smokes, you've got a, a trail and a half on the internet. So I'm excited to dive into the wealth of your knowledge. And I know the listeners will also appreciate it. I want to start though, back in 2012, or perhaps slightly before 2012. And this is a piece of, I guess, your life story that I can imagine is a large part of it. But from what I understand, you decided to run for the president of the United States of America in 2012. And many of us, we're motivated to do something and then we don't do it. And that's a big thing about behavior change or, or attempting to do something is we don't do it. Running for the president, I could imagine, required a fair bit of motivation or perhaps discomfort. Can you go back to that time? What was it that led you to run for the president of the United States of America? Okay. Well, I actually ran in 2012 and tried to run in 2012. And then in 2016, in 2012, there was an online platform called Americans Elect. It was like a third party group. And I think it was a stalking horse for then Mayor Bloomberg. And it was up and running for about six months. And then when Bloomberg decided not to run, they shut the thing down. So, and then I ran again in 2016 as a certified writing candidate. And that requires going around the country and getting registered and paying money and getting people to sign. So I had some work to do to get that to happen. It's not, it's not trivial. So I was actually, you know, legally able to get elected because if you just write in Mickey Mouse, his vote's not going to be counted. He can't, Mickey Mouse cannot be elected president unless he's registered. Nobody's going to help him. <laughs> that could possibly happen. But anyway, the main idea was not to be I didn't think I was going to become president. I thought that was a really small chance. It would require, would have required the press to have actually cared about policy and about how to fix the country. And so I thought it was important then, and I still think it's important now that we have economists who are studying how to fix healthcare, social security, the tax system, the banking system, the education system, you name it. We have solutions that are very simple, as in seven to 10 bullets, not 200 words, 200 pages for fixing these problems that we're not getting conveyed to the public. And you have 530 or so members of Congress, none of whom have a PhD in economics. So there's a consensus among economists. We have left-wing and right-wing economists, but the vast majority of economists are not politically oriented. They're not uh, I think if you're a politically oriented economist, if you're aligned with one of the parties like Paul Krugman or Larry Summers, these names might be familiar, that you almost give up your license to be an economist because you have to adhere, when it comes out to, out to your public pronouncements about the economy, you have to adhere to what the politicians want you to say, what your party is saying, and then you're not being you know objective any longer. So I think you can either be one thing or the other, but you can't be both. So I felt I should go consult with other economists, find out what the best health reform plan is and what the best social security plan is. And I'd written on this stuff myself. I mean, I wrote a book called The Healthcare Fix. I wrote a book, book about how to fix the banking system. It's called Jimmy Stewart is Dead. This latest book I wrote, which is called Money Magic, is actually my 20th. So these books are mostly, mostly for the public, they're trade books. With Money Magic, it's a matter of, we got Wall Street telling people how they should handle their money and their finances and their decisions. And then we got academic economics saying something entirely different, almost at right angles. 
And nobody is telling, no economist is coming out and saying, hey, don't listen to Wall Street, listen to us. And here's why. And also I developed a um, software company starting back in uh, 1993. So it's now 29 years old that conveys the economics approach to financial planning. The company has been growing, the sales of the software grow. And what economics says basically is just in a nutshell, tell me how much, Sean, you've got in resources. Tell me about your household demographics. So now then what your wife or partner might be making, your kids. I'm going to figure out from that what you should spend such that you can keep on spending it. I'm going to do this with high-powered mathematics and algorithms inside a computer, which is what we're using. And you'll be able to see from the result that we're actually coming up with the right answer. And we're not putting you into debt ever. We're uh, respecting your cash flow constraints, but we're giving you a, a plan so that you don't start ending up eating cat, cat food. We all want to have a smooth living standard, right? And we have to do that within our lifetime budget. So that's, you know, step one, let's get your basic spending plan down. That implies a, a saving plan. And it also implies a life insurance plan because if you die, we want to make sure your survivors are able to have ex at least the same living standard they would otherwise have had had you not died. And then we also are in a position now to say, how can we raise your living standard safely? If we have you in the US, maybe not so much in Canada, I'm not sure about you know your, your OAI system or your what is your registered retirement account system, whether you have that the options, but in our system, you have the options of when to take Social Security and it will dramatically affect your lifetime benefits. There are 13 different benefits and you have some choice over uh, how to handle those benefits and that can make a huge amount of a difference. So you can raise your living standards safely by maximizing your social security benefits. You can raise it safely by lowering your lifetime taxes. And this, you do have something similar, or which is the contributions you, I think your registered retirement account uh, are tax de deductible, and then you pay taxes when you take the money out. So exactly when should you start taking the money out? That can matter dramatically to your lifetime taxes. But what about moving to a smaller house, maybe around the corner, downsizing the kids have left? How much can that raise your lifetime living standard? Well, by this, I mean your discretionary spending, mm -hmm. okay? Because there are some fixed expenses you have to pay like on taxes and uh, maybe tuition for your kids to go, to go to college. What about moving to, to a state where there's lower income tax, like in our country, you could move, move from Connecticut to Texas and all of a sudden you'll have no state income tax to pay, but you'll have to pay high, maybe higher property taxes, although they're pretty high in Connecticut too. Or what about switching jobs? You know, here I am, I'm working in Kansas City, Missouri. I got a medium salary. I got a good 401k plan. My housing is cheap. I'm thinking I'm 50. I want to move one more time. I got a job offer at Seattle. Washington state doesn't tax your income. It's one of the eight states that has no income tax. That sounds good. They're why they want to pay me more. That sounds good. Their 4K sucks. That doesn't sound so good. And their housing is three times more expensive than Kansas City, Missouri. Plus I'm giving out my friends that I'm going to the bar with every weekend or hanging out with or bowling or whatever that is, hiking. So I have to know whether my living standards are actually going to be higher if I make this job switch. That's where you need software or at least a methodology for how to make a, cal a rough calculation by hand 
just with algebra. And that's what this, the book Money Magic, because not everybody wants to run software. So I wrote the book to help people. So it sounds like a lot of your work now and perhaps prior to Money Magic is taking these concepts of how you think like an economist, because you are one, and how to help the average individual think like an economist, except not have to actually be an economist or understand all these technical terms. And one way to help is through some software. And I mean, 29 years, this company is fantastic for yourselves. I'm I'm curious here on one thing that I, I do see is this knowing and doing dilemma. And often with economists, we have all this insightful knowledge and we can look at like a situation like you described about, do I move to Seattle to take this job? But there's so many different factors below just the, the initial decision. Based on your experience, how do people start to embrace this idea of thinking like a, an economist, but also not discrediting or forgetting that they're also a human underneath the numbers? Well, I think they need to know the price of things before they're going to be able to pull the trigger. You know, I'll just give you an example. Um, you, you see the beam in this house, right? This is yeah. a, we're living in Providence. My wife and I moved here about a year and a half ago during COVID from Boston. So we had a lovely back bay condo. It was 964 square feet, small, but lovely, beautiful, huge windows, 12 foot ceilings. I just loved it. I love Boston. And the idea of moving to Providence, which is not as exciting a, a place, but has a lot. Uh, anyway, uh, so my wife found this house on the internet. And to me, the, I, I just would not look at, you know, I kind of basically said, no way am I leaving this beautiful condo. I love Boston. I'm 10 minutes from work at Boston University and no way. And then she said, well, let's run us through your software. And see what, <laughs> okay. And then she had me. She's smart. She used it, your own software against you. So then when I ran and I saw that the price of housing per square foot, and this is a terrific, you know, it's a 301-year-old house. It's, it was built in 1720. 300? And one years old. Yeah, wow. It's one of the oldest houses in the country. They actually had moved it in 1979 from a place where they're going to do urban renewal, picked it up and somehow rebuilt it. So all the floors are, are, are flat. You can see the, the floors here. These wide planks floors. Oh, yeah. They're probably 17. They were just redone, refinished, but they're from 1720, apparently. Wow. Anyway, once I got here, I realized that I had been off not just on the cost of living, that we could have a, like a 12% higher living standard the rest of our lives because we we're lowering our housing costs so much. But we also had ended up with more space, 1,600 square feet rather than 964. We have a backyard. We have neighbors, you know, in Boston, 60% of the kids are students. So nobody talks to anybody. The kids are, they talk to each other, they hang out, but they're not interested in somebody, uh, you know, 70 year old or 71 year old permanent resident. And so you have no kind of community. We moved in here. The day we move in, we have this uh, beautiful card from a seven year old who lives across the street saying, welcome, plus the, you know, cookies which she brings over and you know, so it's an entire, we, we have instant, instant friends that was very nice and um, we're happier here. And I would not have suspected it. So interesting. As you were explaining that, I was wondering about, okay, now we have an economics equation that has been through your well-established 29-year company software versus the, the I was wondering about happiness. And uh, last week we released an episode with 
Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. He studies happiness for the last 25 years. He was, he taught at Harvard. And one of the most highly correlated elements of our lives to happiness is relationships. So I was wondering about these potentially severed relationships in Boston and what that would have done to your happiness. But I hear that, no, actually you, you found more relationships and meaningful relationships where you are now. We had no real close, with some close friends, but not nearby. And the ones we do have, we go back and see. Well, they come down to visit us in Providence. It's not that far. So, you know, it's uh, an hour each way and I'm not commuting every day. So, you know, all in all, I just had miscalculated. But the thing of once I got here, I started kind of writing columns about how smart I was or my wife was about, you know, making how much cheaper it was here and how, how the software could help understand this and why people should buy the software to look at their housing. But then I realized, and I say this in the book, that I really made making a huge mistake for like, you know, for years living in this condo in Boston because we were spending too much on housing. We just wasted money for no reason. Had we looked around and had been open to the idea of change, I think that's the thing, you know, the psychological thing. If, if you say, well, I really don't want to do this, but let me just take a look at it and see what it, um, if there's a real, you know, economic value to begin with in, in making a move that psychologically might be hard to do. I'll give you another area where it's psychologically hard to think about living to your maximum age of life. So you, when you say maximum age life, like a hundred. Okay. Yeah. So economics says that everybody should, should focus on their maximum age of life, not their expected age of life. Almost everybody f- focuses on the life expectancy. Part of that is that Wall Street is trying to get people to uh, take their social security money early and give up the fact that if they wait for it, if they wait to take the retirement benefit, they'll get a much higher number. It's like 76% higher Mm -hmm. adjusted inflation than at 62. uh, So that if you take it early, then Social Security will cut you through and you won't have to withdraw from your retirement accounts and and Wall Street can keep managing your money and charging you fees, right? So they're not like independent, you know, innocent here in their recommendation. But psychologically, I think we don't want to think about living for our maximum age of life, because I think we're worried. We want to live. We want to keep on living. We're terrified of dying. We're terrified of getting sick, but we don't want to jinx ourselves. So the idea of planning to live to our maximum age of life, immediately we're thinking, I think that we're jinxing ourselves. That we're going to, if we do that planning, we're going to die tomorrow. But so what economics says is you have to really focus on that outcome because that's your worst case scenario. So psychologically is your best case scenario, but economically speaking, it's your worst case scenario because you have to keep paying for yourself. If you die right away, financially speaking, that's terrific news because you don't have to keep paying for yourself at all. And your relatives don't either. If you go to the social security office, they're going to say, let's say you're 62. They're going to say, Hey, I'm coming in. I just want to talk to you about my benefit. They'll say, take it now. Because if you don't take it and you die tomorrow, you have lost all this money. They'd you worked for and it's your money and you deserve it. But what's going to happen if you die tomorrow? You're going to be in heaven immediately and you're not going to need any money, right? Do you know anybody in heaven who's kicking themselves for not having enough money? Heaven is heaven. We don't need money in heaven. Everything is given to us, right? That's the idea of heaven. We're good. If we're bad, I don't think we're going to be, money is not going to help us either. We're going to be so to get out of the, the <laughs> to get out of jail, 
So we really don't need money when we're dead. We need money when we're alive. And the worst is when we leave money when we're really you know, very old. And so what economics says is, look, clearly the chances of making it to 100 are very low. Although if you're a couple, you have like a 25% chance of one of you, if you're like 62, of making it to 90. So longevity is much more significant than you think. But anyway, what economics says is you're not likely to make it to 100. So if you should take a gamble, unless you're super risk averse, to spend more when you're younger, knowing that if you keep living, you'll gradually reduce your living standard. You'll spend less and less. So maybe you'll take a 25% lower living standard when you're 100, but you're not going to be partying that much at 100. You're not going to need your tango shoes or more new skis um, and uh, the trip around the world because you're not going to be physically up for it, right? You will need other things like home health care, some of which you can buy through or cover through insurance. So there are arguments for spending, you know, might want to reduce your discretionary spending, but increase your reserves for, you know, long-term care. But this is, so economics uh, doesn't say ignore the chance that you're going to die earlier. It just says, here's how to handle it. Here's how to think about it. And let's move away from the superstition that mm-hmm. if I think about living to my maximum age, I'm jinxing myself. So therefore I'm going to plan to die on time because if we all plan to die on time, we're going to be starving if we live a day after. If we don't we die a day after a life expectancy, we won't have any money left. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I feel like there's also uh, a psychological benefit to being okay with your own mortality. So not only economics does it help, but I think when we, we accept that mortality, I think we just get more permission maybe to, to live now. Yeah, and in the book, I thought it was interesting how... Um, I don't think you actually mean it, but maybe so, but shacking up with your parents. So <laughs> going to live with your parents, but you 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 really speak to this idea of questioning that, that home cost and the impacts it has on your lifetime expenditures. So when you look at this, people try to find coupons safe here and there, all these little things that we do, how significant is it in comparison to just Simple, well, not all the case simply, but downsizing your home. Downsizing your home, I would say that if you're older, getting Social Security right and downsizing your home are the really big kickers for raising your living standard. Also, you know, living in a lower tax state and handling, you know, Roth conversions, things that will lower your retirement accounts. But the first, the biggest two are getting Social Security straight and downsizing because, you know, if you've got like a four bedroom house and the kids, aren't coming every weekend, better live in a half the size house. And when they come, you rent them an Airbnb or a hotel room, or you all go to some, you know, the Cancun or somewhere or Canada, Edmonton, you're in Edmonton. Edmonton, Edmonton yeah, come to Edmonton. Come to Edmonton. Nice Edmonton. City. So, uh, and include that in your plan and see whether you're actually can have more discretionary spending. Right now, because the, the millennials and the I guess, what's the generation below them? Is that the X generation? Yeah, I think it's Gen X. No, 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 not Gen X. Uh, Z. Z, Z, Z. Yeah, X is in between millennials and boomers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Zers, they're having a rougher time in the labor market. Their entry wages are lower. They're, they may not have as much wealth. A lot of them don't have as much wealth in their 20s and 30s and 30, you know, early 40s, millennials and, and Zers as their parents had. So... It's important not to overspend on housing because your living standard can be pretty similar if you 
a lot of uh, younger people are living with their parents. There's been a dramatic, in the U.S., dramatic increase in the fraction of people in their 20s living with their parents. I think it's gone from maybe like 20, I think I have in the book, I'm forgetting exactly the numbers. It might have gone from like 20% up to like 50%. It's it's huge mm-hmm. increase in the last 15 years. And it's connected with the economy and automation and the fact that it is hard. We don't have the same kind of economy. We have much more competition from abroad. So, uh, and much less, much more wage inequality. So some younger people who are uh, great coders and uh, entrepreneurs are raking in lots of labor income and uh, other kids are, you know, being left as baristas. So stay home with your parents. Yeah. From an evolutionary perspective, we cohabitated with our, our families for much longer than we have independent living like we do now. And it's interesting, you look at different cultures and that's still a predominant practice is living with your family members. And it's interesting how much A, relationships and just meaningful relationships and togetherness that you have, but also it costs a lot less for both parties. Like the parents, even grandparents with the kids growing up. And I know there's an extra, I guess, consideration in having to live with each other, but yeah, from an economic standpoint and even like a relational standpoint, if all parties get along, I think it, it does make sense or it can make sense in certain situations. But yet we have this idea that we have to be independent. We have to have our own home. Well, yeah, I mean, point of fact, if, you know, older people live with their kids, they, they're in effect getting uh, home health care from their kids. And then if the kids have moved into the parents' house and the parents have the kids in their will, then when the parents die, they leave the house to the kid. So it's an economic uh, transaction here. And it's between people that can hopefully get along and even like each other and have fun together. And maybe they can set things up so there's enough privacy for each party. Annuities out there that you can buy in the financial market, which is you plunk some money down and you get a stream of income back from the insurance company that continues until you die. So here you are at 70, you buy an annuity and it's longevity insurance because if you keep living, it keeps coming. It's just like the social security benefit. It's really just like your house. I mean, the services from this room are going to continue as long as we own the house. So it's a real annuity of services that won't go away as long as we continue to live and stay in the house. So anyway, the problem with annuities is that you cannot buy an inflation-protected annuity. So I plunk some money down. I'm thinking, like the markets right now, that I'm going to get, there's going to be 2% inflation out for the next 30 years. It turns out to be 7% for the next 15 years. All the money I put, all the money I'm going to, get back is going to buy nothing, you know, because the price of a hot dog will end up at 500 bucks a hot dog. And I'll be getting the same measly $50,000 a year. It'll buy a few hot dogs. So we need to protect ourselves. If we um, do a deal with our kids and say, look, even forgetting any healthcare assistance, I'm healthy or the kids are healthy. Let's just do a deal whereby if I live longer than my life expectancy, you give me some money. You from your wages, which are inflation connected, right? And if I die early, you're going to get the house. You'll get the house either way. But if I die early, it's going to be a more economic value to you. So we now have an insurance market between the kid and the parent. So I wrote back in uh, with a co-author back in 1981, a book called The Family is an Incomplete Annuities Market. 
economics, so it shows you, shows you that families are, can be great insurance markets. Even a small number like uh, four can get about 70% of the wage of perfect insurance. But with insurance markets, you have lots of um, costs that you wouldn't have with ins family insurance. You have what are called loads, you know, transactions costs. And plus there's lack of information. The insurance company will charge you more because they think you're a bigger risk. You know, if you buy an annuity, they think you're trying to rip them off and they might be right. You might have grandparents and great-grandparents and parents, all of whom died at 100 and they don't know it. And you go and you say, I want to buy your, uh, your annuity. And now they have to say, okay, we'll have to charge you, give you less money for your payment because of the chance that you're likely to be somebody who's going to live a long time. That's called adverse selection in economics. With a family, people know the whole common history of when grandma died. So that information problem goes away. So family insurance can be you know, much more beneficial than commercial insurance. When you look at a country like India where people, where there's not too much in the way of, at least in the countryside, formal insurance markets. And one of the kids gets into trouble, they lose their job. And now maybe a distant cousin who's done well is asked by the uncle, <laughs> who's the brother of the kid's father, to have him pay some money over here. This is family insurance. It may also be altruism. It might be some, you know, deep-seated love, but it's more likely just because that kid who's going to kick in the money knows that he's got a network. When, when he gets into trouble, he can call on the other people in the network to help them out. That's just insurance market with a different name to it. Yeah, that, that's such a fascinating concept. And for many of us, we don't frame it that way. It definitely is a form of insurance. Now, this conversation is reminding me of a chapter in your book. When I read the chapter, it's chapter six, I was like, well, that's interesting. And uh, as I read it, I felt like I had to be open and curious to hear your perspective. But the chapter is called Marry for Money, the oldest financial trick in the book. So when I read it, I'm like, okay, an economist wrote that. If the goal is to maximize our money, that makes sense. Share your thoughts around this idea of marrying for money, the oldest financial trick in the book. Well, you know, if you go back to Babylonia, I mean, I start out by saying that, you know, go back several thousand BC in Babylonia, you cannot get a bride unless you bought her at auction. It was illegal not to buy your bride and you would either pay kind of a dowry for the bride. You know, in some cases, the bride's family would pay you so the auction price could be negative. So this is like called a dowry versus a bride's price. Thank goodness for progress, because that just sounds horrible, but... <laughs> it sounds horrible, but in yeah. some ways, you know, we're all on the auction. If you think about Match.com or Tinder or these, all these online dating sites, we're putting up information about our attributes, you know, our age, our physical capacities, our ability to play sports, but also what our job is, right? That's important, our education. And so we're signaling right away what our value is. So this is really much, very much a marriage market. It takes a bit of a hard-nosed economist to call it what it is that we're selling ourselves. And why shouldn't we? It's not to say that love and, you know, romance and uh, care, you know, learning to care for somebody doesn't play a role here. But if you have two people that are equally nice that you can be spending the rest of your life with, and one person is making twice the amount that the other person is making, 
there's nothing wrong with going for that person who's making twice the amount of money. It might be that if you're used to a higher living standard because you grew up that way, that the longevity of your relationship will be better or will be higher and less likely to get divorced if your living standard is more likely like what you've been accustomed to. Yeah, so I did get a little bit of a pushback from the editor about the title. Mm -hmm. But I said, well, you know, this is really the reality of what's going on. It's not like people are not marrying for or mm -hmm. acting for money. They they are. So an education and, you know, cultural backgrounds, they think there's a better fit. And here again, you may, if you're rich enough, you may not need to worry about marrying for money. The other person might find you more interesting because you do have a lot of money. And you might guys might be perfectly happy. It might be marriage made in heaven. And that person who's poor will might be called a gold digger. But maybe that person studied art history in college and is extremely you go to a museum and you have you get an education in that you would never have experienced. Uh, you'd have to pay for, you know, maybe that person knows how to cook better than the top chef in the city. Maybe that person plays piano and has all kinds of talents that you don't have. Maybe they're bringing something to the table that is not exactly, you can put a dollar figure on it almost. And so they have a lot of money, but it's not enough kind of the form of earnings power. Mm -hmm. Two things that allowed me to, to hear more of what you're saying is like, A, it didn't sound like it was a gender one way or another. And I think for me, when I first read it, it was like the historical context of like, wait, is this, but you were clear that it's not one gender or the other when you're saying marriage for money. And the other one is like, yeah, there could be other things that they bring to the table. And from what I, what I understand on you is uh, I don't think you married for money and your, your, your spouse brought in more of an arts flair to your relationship. My first wife was an actress, fantastic actress. She hasn't had a lot of commercial success, but in community theaters, she can, you know, bring people to tears. We're remain close friends and we were married a long time. And I could tell right from the get-go that her love of life was acting. I mean, she's a fantastic actress. She was born to be an actress and she couldn't make a living as an actress, but I could make a living being an economist for both of us. And she could be an actress and be happier and uh, make other people happy and help, you know, have more time to bring up the kids from, from not having a nine to five job. And so I saw this, look, was it better for her to be an actress and basically be home with the kids? Or should we hire an au pair and have her do a boring nine to five job? So no, we went the first route. And happiness wise, we were much better off that way. You know, so you know, marriages are not necessarily built to last forever. About 43% of first marriages fail, 63% of second marriages fail, 76% or something of third marriages fail. We have to get around away from the, um, so there's a chapter in the book about getting divorced equitably or, you know, without divorce war, divorce without divorce war, how you, how you can do that. So I learned a lot getting divorced about how to treat my ex-wife fairly. And so that she thought it was fair and not have to negotiate, not have the lawyers involved, not have a divorce war, not have to argue over every little thing before we kind of figured out the big picture of what our relative living standards were going to be, because I was still working and still am. And so she thought it was reasonable for me to have a somewhat higher living standard, discretionary spending. And once we had that figured out, the kind of ratio of our discretionary spending, everything else was like trivial to figure out, to calculate. It just fell out of the analysis. And that's what I talk about in the book. Yeah, I mean, you know, would I have encouraged her to get a job and we hire an au pair 
for the kids. In retrospect, no, I think we made the right decision. I can think of all the great places she was in. That's like a lasting gift to me. And my current wife, she retired a couple of years ago. She was a, a property manager for some very major buildings in Boston and for Wayfair, Wayfair and a high-tech company, Athena Health. But at some point, you know, they, they try and get older people to drop out because they have to pay them more. Mm-hmm. They like to hire people low-wage, career advancement, but then they don't tell you that when you're 59, they're going to have you drive eight hours a day to a call center for Wayfair in Oregon. You're going to fly out economy <laughs> to Oregon twice a month, drive four hours to some call center in, in a remote place, drive back. It turned out to be too much and we could afford for her not to work. So we made that decision. And she's also a photographer. So she's put on a photography exhibit here in, in Providence. And she was in a band, all kinds of talents. We're trying to say that there is a, a translation of these non-pecuniary things into dollars. And we have to think about what they're worth. So think about how much am I willing to Let's say I'm thinking about divorce. I hate my husband, Joe. I've hated him for a long time. He's worth 15% of my living standard. I'd be willing to give up to 15% of my living standard to be away from Joe. Let's say this is really not amicable. I mean, it could be amicable divorce, but it could be I just really have had it with Joe. But if I really calculate, which is what I'm trying to get people to do, that I'm going to have a 35% reduction in my living standard if I get divorced. Well, I decided to stick it out with Joe and make the best of it and maybe renew my marital vows and try and go to marriage therapy and figure out a different way to make things better, if not perfect, because I understand the price of divorce or I understand the price of a trip around the world in terms of my discretion or the price of retiring early. How much is that going to lower my living standard? So everything in economics can be priced. We can put a price on everything. That sounds very mercenary, pecuniary. The standard story is that economists know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I would say that nobody knows the price of anything or almost everything. We know the price of groceries, but we don't know, don't really think about the price of, um, of retiring early, of moving into a smaller house, how much it really will save us, moving to Texas with a lower cost for the pro- you know, switching jobs. We don't know those prices We don't know that that job in Seattle could entail a 10% lower living standard, even though it looks better until we actually do the calculations, which we can do with arithmetic these days, or we could use my company software. It's called maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com. Even Canadians can use it because they can just tell the program to turn off all the taxes and social security benefits and enter, enter their own estimates as special expenses and receipts and run the program that way, they'll get pretty close to the right answer, maxifi.com. So we we have uh, technology now that can really price uh, decisions. So, you know, the idea is to smooth your living standard, raise your living standard, price your economic decisions, understand the risk to your living standard of investing, like in the stock market, how risky, what's the upside and downside to your living standard. That's the economics approach right there. I just gave you the four things, four bullets. The the conventional approach is I come to you, Sean, I say, I'm your financial planner. Sean, how much would you like to spend in retirement? You're 45, let's say. Maybe you're 35. You look 35. 36, so you're close. I want to spend $10 million a year. Yeah. I'm joking. 
You're joking, but it, that's the question they ask. Yeah. Then they'll say, you yeah, know, Sean, that's a little bit more than you can afford. Let's use this rule of thumb estimate, which is uh, that you'll spend 80% of your pre-retirement earnings. Now I've got you set up with a target that's way too high because that rule of thumb is way off base. Certainly wrong for everybody. So the so right away, I've got I baited you into this high spending target. Now, the next thing I do is let's tell me how you're, you're uh, investing. You tell me you're investing conservatively, cautiously. I said, well, if I put you more in stocks, your probability of making the target goes way up and your probability of failing goes way down. And you say, well, that sounds good. Let's go into, into these high yield, high fee investments. That's called bait and switch. That's malfeasance. That's all aspects of conventional finance. They're all working. All the software is working that way. It's a selling product. It's not to get you safe, keep you safe. So now that you're in this, you have some probability of failure. Failure means running either running, you know, maybe you have a very low social security benefit or a retirement OAI benefit plus RRTS benefit. And so running out of assets is going to mean real deprivation. So, and let's call it starvation to be clearer. So they've given you a plan with a low probability of starvation. If they were forced to describe, Sean, I've come up with a great plan. The probability of your starving to death is really is 3%. How would you feel about that plan? You say, get me away from this guy yeah. or this. Okay. That's not the kind of plan. Economics would never plan for people to starve to death. It's just not, mm-hmm. you know, it's the worst possible outcome. We would say, look, you have to adjust your spending, that target, you need to be adjusting every year. First of all, the target's too high, so we have to set a whole path of spending right now and adjust it every year from 35 on in light of how you do on the market. If you've got, if your investments do poorly, we're gonna, program says, cut your spending. Common sense says, cut your spending. You're poor. If you do great, raise your spending a little bit, but don't raise it so that you spend all your winnings, spread them out, right? I like this approach of um, thinking like the economist in the sense of maximizing. I could see why the, t- uh, the company name is Maxify, was it? Well, the software tool is called Maxify. We have another tool called um, Allies, My Divorce Settlement, which okay. is helping divorce. We have a third one called Maximize My Social Security. This is good for Americans who are trying just to focus on Social Security. And... Uh, the, the company is called Economic Security Planning. Economic Security Planning. So, you know, emphasis on security, that you're going to be safe. That's the most important thing, not going out of money. I think that's what we all strive for, is that security and safety. Lawrence, I, I should have booked more time. So many things I want to get into. I, I see we have a minute left. I'm happy to come back. Love talking I, to you. I, I was really curious about, though, when in 2016, when the presidential election didn't go your way and Donald Trump won, I understand and I found this wonderful playbook online called You're Hired, a Trump Playbook for Fixing America's Economy. And I would love to dive into that because you have how the current system is bankrupting our children, improving incentives to work, daycare support, supporting family planning, leveraging technology to equalize education, fixing taxes and fixing Wall Street and so many more things. So perhaps we need to dive into there because I think there are some really fascinating things that can support the whole economy and and all individuals within this economy. So right after Trump won, I uh, took my platform, which was 
150 pages. I made it into this like 100 page book called You're Hired, uh, a Trump playbook for fixing America's economy. Because I figured that Donald Trump could actually read. Little did I know that he can't read. And, you know, I think he's a traitor. I don't think anybody publicly has called him out to be a traitor that used the T word. But, you know, when you start an insurrection, when you start trying to engage in a coup, and that's where he's after next time. I think he's a traitor and some people and people should be calling him out mm-hmm. uh, for that. So I do every, every opportunity I have. In addition, I think he's a disgusting person and anybody supporting him should talk to their parents and, and get some moral guidance. Even if they're dead, they should go to a seance, seance um, and talk and see if that's how their parents actually wanted them to grow up. But the book's out there for President Biden. Mm-hmm. So as the title, a playbook, I'll probably change it tomorrow playbook for President Biden. And uh, and I think I'll start writing about, you know, these different policies, how Biden can perhaps resurrect his presidency. Not that I think he's done that bad a job. I think he's done basically a, a B plus job. But we have huge problems in Social Security, healthcare, country's not saving anything. We're not investing anything. We're heading down the path of Argentina and the country's broke long-term. Infrastructure is terrible. That bill they just passed is peanuts compared to what's needed. It's being hyped, but it's basically just replacing, you know, the salting of the roads for, you know, m- new money to do what they we've been doing before. I, I feel like we need to schedule round two to dive into this playbook because I think there's some fascinating topics in there. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for joining and sharing uh, your insights. Thank you. And I'll link to the show notes for your book and your other work as well. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. And thank you to Lawrence for coming on and sharing his wealth of knowledge with us. If you're enjoying this podcast, these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It certainly does help bring guests onto the show, and I would greatly appreciate it. Until next week, have yourself a good one.